we're doing our last episode in our series on Christianity 101. And we kind of got stuck three weeks ago uh, in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6. Remember we looked there at, at the first week, we looked at the, the ABCs of our Christian faith. And it's verses 1 and 2 and kind of 3 of Hebrews chapter 6. And then we moved on last week and we looked at a really, really difficult question of, of well, is it possible for me to lose my salvation? And that was a heavy week, and it was a difficult week, uh, and anybody who tells you they can give you an answer to that in one short sentence probably hasn't thought about it enough, because it's complex. But, but I wonder whether maybe some of us didn't go home last week and say, I'm confused now. Maybe we went home and said, I wonder, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? Can I be sure that God is going, to, is going to be for me? Can I be sure that on judgment day, when I say, I've put my hope in that man, that he says, no, you haven't? Or that he says, yes, you have? Am I saved? And the writer to the Hebrews is a brilliant guy. He's a, he's a brilliant pastor because he, he's just warned us. He's warned his church. He said to them, look, you've got to watch your life. And then he comes in verse 9 and he says, look, I've spoken to you about the possibility of backsliding and falling away. But, my dear friends, beloved ones, my people, I am convinced, out of sight convinced, that what we are talking about does not concern you. We are convinced that you are, you are the recipients of better things, things that accompany salvation. And, and it, it's this complete change of tone here. He's, he's been warning us last week. He's, he's told us the week before, you've you got you to move beyond the basis. You've got to grow to maturity. And now he says, but when I look at you, just because you're not mature doesn't mean that you're not Christians. I look at you and I can see evidence in your lives, in your faith, in your walk with God that you are the children of God, that you have a living, vibrant, personal relationship with Jesus. And he says there, I'm convinced that you <clears throat> are, let me read it for you over here, even though we're talking this way, we don't really believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things. He's just talked about how a field that produces thorns and thistles will be cursed and burnt up. And he says, no, I am sure that you are not meant for cursing. You are meant for things that accompany salvation. You are meant for life. You are meant for eternity. You are meant for God. You're meant for blessing, not cursing. What an encouragement. I mean, you need that after verse 8. You need verse 9 to come to us, but I'm sure that you are meant for better things. But look at where he goes there. He says, I'm sure that you're meant for better things that accompany salvation. Why? Two reasons. First off, God's not unjust.
And the second reason, and God has seen what you have been doing. God has seen how you have been loving one another. God has seen how you have been working for the benefit of one another. God has seen how you have been putting yourself out for the sake of another. God has seen your service to the saints. God knows what you have been doing. And he is not unjust. And he's not going to look over your good works. You see, there's two sides to the justice of God. There's a side that says those who reject God will face the wrath of God. But that's only half of justice. Justice which ignores good is not justice at all. And the writer to the Hebrew says, you know, God is just. If you do something good, God will not say, oh, how pathetic. God will say, that is wonderful, that is good. And these people here, what are they doing? They are serving the saints, which says the writer to the Hebrews is serving God. In their love for one another, in their, in their doing stuff for one another, in their taking care of one another's needs, what they are doing is serving God. Do you remember what Jesus said about this? With that story which parallels chapter 6 of Hebrews where the people are standing before God and, uh, and some of them say, Lord, we, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We, we did all this stuff. Uh, and he says to some, I don't know you. And he says to others, come, be with me. And they say, well, when did... Uh, he says to them, come be with me because when I, was, when I was without a shirt, you gave me a shirt. This is the Nicholas authorized version. When, when I was without clothing, you gave me clothing. When I was in need of a drink of water, you gave me water. When I was in need, you looked after me. And the people that he says that to, they, they turn to Jesus and they say, well, Lord, when did we ever do this stuff for you? When did we give you a drink of water? When did we give you a shirt? And the reply is, whatever you have done for one of mine, you have done for me. And the writer to the Hebrews comes and says the same thing here. He's just told us that there are some who, who do not belong to God, but now verse 9 onwards he says, there are you guys who do belong to God, and, and we know that you belong to God because of your attitude towards one another. You have an attitude of service. You have an attitude of ministry. And you, as you're serving one another, you are serving God. And God, who is not unjust, will reward you for that service. I'm getting some very quizzical looks. God will reward us for that service? Am I talking here? Is the writer to the Hebrews talking here in, in verse 10 of chapter 6? Is he talking about salvation by works? If you do enough, if you're good enough, God will give you a big tick next to your name. Is that what he's saying? Of course not. Salvation is by faith through grace, not by works, lest anyone should boast. We can't work our way into heaven. We can't be good enough for God. Even the, the best of our bestness, the, the, the goodest, the goodest of our goodness is not good enough for God. Works don't save us. 
But if we are saved, we do good works. James says it the same way. He basically says, faith without works is dead. Peter says the same thing in his, I think it's his second letter. He says, also, we have to, we have to work our faith out. You see, this is one of the reasons why the writer to the Hebrews is convinced that his people that he's writing to are Christians because he looks at them and their character in terms of what they are doing for one another is a Christian character. In loving one another, in in serving one another, in being Christ for one another, they are showing evidence of a life that is growing in the likeness of Christ. But we might say, does that mean that if somebody is a good person, a loving person, a kind person, does that mean that we can say 100% certainty that person is saved? Of course not. Being good in us doesn't save us. But, but you know, if, if we look at somebody in the church and they're the kind of person that Well, that they don't show love to one another. They don't serve the saints. They're unconcerned for the well-being of Christians. In their daily life, they don't reflect the character of God, of Jesus Christ. If they don't have that, then we have to stop and wonder Do you really know Jesus? Is the Holy Spirit really in you? Because the Holy Spirit is a renovator. He renovates our hearts. It's like, I don't know if any of you watched that show, The Block. I caught two seconds of it, but the places that they put it into are dumps. And they're supposed to make it into this shining, multi-million dollar place to sell. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes into the dump house and makes it beautiful. But if that beauty doesn't get seen, is he there? What does he say, the writer to the Hebrews? Chapter 6, he says, verse 10, God's not unjust. He'll not forget how you've worked for him, shown love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain what you hope for will come true. Then you will not be spiritually dull and indifferent. What he says there, he says, looking at your life, I see something that shows me that that you are growing in the likeness of Christ, that you are serving one another, that you are loving one another. But, But my desire is that you will keep working out your faith. Why? So that you can be sure of the hope to which you hold. How does serving one another shore up our our hope? How does serving one another, loving one another, shore up our hope? I think it's a case of when I am Christ to another person, to another of his children. I am saying, Jesus Christ, 
is here with you. In our attitude of love to one another, we are speaking without words the promises of Jesus to one another. We are saying to each other, Jesus Christ is coming back, and in the meantime, let me represent him to you. But the danger, you know, it's so easy to be lazy. Chapter 5, verse 11, three weeks ago, the writer to the Hebrews had a go at his readers, had a go at us, and said, you guys, what is wrong with you? He says there, 5 verse 11, we'd like to say much more, but it's difficult to explain because you are spiritually dull. The the literal word there, you are lazy when it comes to learning the things of the faith. And he turns around and he says, you know, here in in chapter 6 verse 11 verse 12, he says, we don't want you to be lazy when it comes to serving one another. Because, you know, if we don't live out, if we don't practice the character of Christ that is within us, how can we not practice the character of Christ that is within us? We need to persevere. We need to keep holding on to that faith. We need to keep being Christ for one another. And Calvin, I'm going to misquote him, but, but he was basically saying if, if, if you are a Christian who wants to love one another, you're in for a tough time. Because love is difficult. Being a Christian is not easy. Uh, and we can't just say, well, I'll, 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 I'll serve that person or I'll do that when I feel like it. Because you know what? We'll never feel like it. <laughs> Says the writer to the Hebrews and to us, be diligent about it. Love one another. Serve. Now, make a decision that you are going to represent Christ and and work out this character that the Spirit is working within you. Paul says, you've got to remember this, he says that we, we work out our faith because the Spirit is at work within us. I think it's Ephesians. Yes, Ephesians 2. You all assured that you're saved? Is that assurance enough? Is that, is that enough? Work out your faith? No? It sounds, it sounds very much sort of like still what we must do to be assured of our faith. And yes, there's a bit that says, you know, we've got this character of Christ within us, but, but more, more, more assurance, more assurance, God. What does he say? He says, right, I need you to be diligent. Why? Let's look back in history because you are to be imitators of the faith, imitators of those who persevered. And he goes and he speaks about Abraham and he says, look, this, this, this Abraham bloke, he's one of my favorite characters, uh, says the writer of the Hebrews. Let me tell you about him. Here is a man who when he was ancient, very ancient, God said, I will bless you. I will give you many descendants. I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number. And what does God come and do? Says the writer to the Hebrews, and this is Genesis chapter 22, he goes to Abraham and he swears an oath to Abraham and says, I will surely bless you. 
And it seems impossible, but Abraham believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. And he keeps believing God through the difficult times, through the tough times, through the times when he wants to to come up with another solution. He says, I will believe God. And what happens at the end of the day? He saw the promise true. And this, this is where real assurance of faith comes from. The other stuff, that, that sort of side effect assurance of, of faith. The real reason why we can be sure that we are saved. Because God has made a promise. God has made an oath to us. God has said to us that we are His, that He will certainly bless us. Ephesians Chapter 3, verse 18, might be 2, verse 18, says that the, the heir of this promise is Jesus Christ. And we in Jesus Christ, we are the heirs of the promises made to Abraham. Why did God make the promise? So that we would be sure that His word would not change. What's this whole deal with the the promise-making, the oath-making? Back in those days, and still kind of today, I suppose, if you wanted to to assert the veracity, the truth of what you were saying, you would make an oath. And, And you'd swear by somebody greater than you. Because if you misled the people about the person greater than you, that person would be very angry at you because you were dragging his name or her name through the mud. And they might come and get you. So if, if you swore an oath by somebody greater than you, it was sort of like done. It's the truth. And God comes and says, I will swear an oath to you. You have my word that I will bless you, but I will commit myself absolutely to that. And there's no one greater than God. So God says, I will be guarantor for my own oath. There's one of the occasions when, when God gives the, the covenant to Abraham. I think it's chapter 15, where God, in effect, says to Abraham, Abraham, if I don't keep this covenant, may I be torn asunder. May I be torn in two. That's big stuff from God. This is a big oath. Why? Why does God say it? So that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. God gave both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie, so his word is enough, but he says, right, double my word and my oath. I cannot lie when I say that I will bless you, when I say that you are mine, when I say that you are my child, that is the truth. And so we should be greatly encouraged because we are the heirs of the promise. We have fled to him for refuge. And we have taken hold of the hope 
hope which is Christ himself. You know, this is the only time that the anchor motif is used in the whole Bible. The only other time an anchor is mentioned is when Paul is being shipwrecked in Acts. And then the anchor fails. <laughs> Says the writer to the Hebrews, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Normally you throw an anchor down into the water and, uh, and it sticks in the depths and keeps the boat secure, but, but this anchor has gone into heaven behind the curtain. Why do you have an anchor? You have an anchor to keep you secure against the rolling and the rocking of the waves. Our anchor, our hope, who is Jesus Christ himself, has gone into heaven where God himself is, into the most holy of places behind the curtain. And our lives are held fast right there. You see, assurance of salvation is not so much uh, about what we do. Assurance of salvation is I am holding on to this hope which is securing me to the very presence of God. And though this world will one day shake and all that is, that is will be shaken, that which is unshakable, that which cannot be moved is on the other end of this line. Am I saved? If I'm holding on to that anchor, if that anchor is holding me safe to God, absolutely. Absolutely. You see, this is assurance of salvation that God has promised us that He will bless us through Jesus Christ. This is assurance of salvation that Jesus Christ has gone ahead of us into the very presence of God. And as long as we are held in Jesus, nothing can move us. And when we're holding on to that, it will come out, it will find expression in our lives, in our character, in our love for one another. My dear brothers and sisters, I hope that we are encouraged this morning. Because God has sworn an oath. He loves us. He gives us his own character. He gave us his own son. Who is our hope. Who is our security. Who is our anchor, firm and safe. And God is sure that you are His. Amen.